Have you ever noticed that when you meet someone new, this is a very common thing, is after you find out, so what's your name or some basic pleasantries, very early on, the next question is, so what do you do, right? We ask, so where do you work? And so really what we're asking, and we don't think about this, but we really are, we're asking, so what skill do you have that another employer sees as valuable and worthy of compensating you so that you can further expand their business. Like, we don't say that, but that's essentially what we're thinking is we're, we're thinking, well, what do you do? Like, what are you good at? And whether or not we realize it, we're, we're trying to get to someone's identity, by figuring out and asking basic questions like, so what do you do? Where do you work? But I think a better question for us to ask each other would be, if you met someone for the first time, and then you would say, hi, so who are you? That's kind of weird, right? Like, that's kind of, a, kind of an uncomfortable question to be asked, who are you? But the truth is that asking the question, who are you, is actually a better question than what do you do? Because being precedes doing. So who you be comes first, and what you do comes second. So what you do flows from who you are. So think of it this way. We are human beings, we're not human doings. There's, there's a reason why. Because we, as people made in God's image, we, we cannot consistently behave in a way that is different from what we believe about ourselves. So what we believe at our core about who we are will directly impact what we do. So what you believe about who God is and what God does will directly impact what you believe about who you are. And if you don't know who you are, if you don't know who God is, then you're going to have no compass in life. You're going to be floating like a leaf in the wind. And so we're asking this question in this series, who are you? The idea of this renewed identity is reclaiming who God has made you to be. Not as defined by the world, not as defined by the lies of the enemy, but as defined by what the word of God says. And so what defines you? When our public facade is is stripped away, because we all have one, let's just be honest. But when our public facade is stripped away, who do you truly believe you are? What is your identity? Because we do what we do because of who we are. And according to the word, we are new creations with a new identity. And so through the the life and sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus, 
Jesus initiated something new, a new beginning, a new creation. That's who we are. We are made new as we just sung so powerfully. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. That is the gospel. That we were dead and Jesus resurrected and he has brought us back to life and resurrected us. And so we have this new, this renewed identity. And we've been learning about that. And so a couple weeks ago, I preached on community. And we learned how our identity is wrapped up in being the people of God. That you don't belong to yourself. You belong to Jesus and to his family. And so we belong to each other. We talked about that in our community as being part of our identity. And so community is the context for the mission. And then last week, our associate pastor, Colton White, he preached about growth and how we are called to be holy. What is holy? And we are designed by our very creation to be set apart for God and his purposes And so the result of the mission is growth. We saw that last week. So these these two, and there's two more. So we have growth and community, influence. We'll talk about that today and next week. And the last one is worship. These are four key words that define your identity, community, and growth, and influence, and worship. And by the way, these four don't just define who you and I are as individuals, these four key words also describe the Renewal Church strategy, if you will, the gospel-centered how. So how do we accomplish our vision? So our vision as a church is to bring God's renewal to Bell County and the world. Well, how do you do that? Through growth, through community, through influence, and through worship. And so you do this as individuals, and we do it together as a faith family. When we're talking about influence, talking about gospel-centered influence, and there's two ways that we express our gospel-centered influence. One is we serve the church. We'll talk about that today. And then next week, we serve the world. So our identity is we are servants, and next week we'll see that we are missionaries. This is our identity. It's who we are. It's not just what we do. It's at our core who we are. And so serving the church. And so by our design, God has made us to be servants. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. We will spend the most of our time today in 1 Corinthians 12. I will allude to two other verses, but for the bulk of our time, 1 Corinthians 12, as you look for it, let me give you the main idea for this text for this morning, is that your identity in Christ is a servant of God. So part of your identity of who you are in Christ, your identity is a servant of God. So serving is not just what you do, it's who you are. Let me give you three truths this morning that will govern all of our thoughts about being a servant. The first one, so the first truth is the basis for your identity as a servant. So let's get our minds around the foundation. What is is the basis for having this identity as 
servants. Let's read verses 12 through 14. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And so the church is described as being the body of Christ. And so we are all equally sinful, and we are all equally saved by the grace of God through Christ's work on the cross. And so we are one body. And so what we share is we saved by grace. We share our Father in heaven. We're all adopted into his family. We share the same King and Redeemer, Jesus. And it says that we drank of the same Spirit. So we share the same Holy Spirit that binds us. And so even though there is great diversity, there is unity. And so we may have different preferences, different ideas, we, we may think, well, I, I don't really like that song, or I don't really like that style, or I don't really like that whatever. And so all of us can have different ideas or thoughts or preferences. But what unites us, what binds us, is not personal preference, but that we have drunk of the same Spirit of God. That is what unites us. And that is what makes us one people, the body of Christ. Now, as we begin to understand what this means, that we are the body and how we are meant to reflect Jesus to this world, let's turn to Mark chapter 10. I want to read to you briefly a few verses that give us a context for this about who Jesus is as a servant. Mark 10, verses 42 through 45. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve." And to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. So Jesus came, and we see here that through his gospel, he came to give his life as a ransom, describing his work on the cross. And so this gospel defines who we are, and then it shapes who we are as his people. And so what is the basis? What is the foundation for your identity as a servant? Jesus the servant king. He is the basis. So we are servants because we reflect the glory of our king who is the servant. Jesus did not come like other kings. Other kings, other rulers in this world have needs. And most of them think they need power. That's what we see today. And the U.S. is no different from other countries that the rulers of this world just wants to grasp for more clout, more power, and yet what you have with Jesus is the exact opposite because Jesus has all the power. 
all the authority, and yet he did not grasp at it. He humbled himself and came as a servant. So he who had all authority did not grasp it, and he did so so that you and I, who have no authority, and yet we grasp at it foolishly and sinfully, Jesus came, did not grasp authority, so that we who grasp at authority is not ours, could be forgiven. This is what Jesus did. He did the unthinkable. A king does not humble himself and come as a servant. And yet that is precisely what we see Jesus did. He took on the form of a servant, washing the feet of his disciples, enduring our shame and guilt on the cross. And when we serve, let's just make this super clear on a Sunday morning. When we serve, we don't serve because God needs anything from us. God doesn't need you or me. Jesus came to serve Not because he needed anything from us. It's not like he's an employer that has his employees and he needs his employees to make his business run. That's not Jesus. You're not his employee. Jesus needs nothing from us. Jesus came who needed nothing because we needed everything. If you want to get a better picture of this, I want to tell you a story from the Old Testament. It's really not a story per se. There were lots of these stories, but it's more of a teaching from Deuteronomy, and it's in chapter 15, verses 12 through 18. I won't read it, but in your own time, I encourage you to read it. Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 18. It describes how there were many people in the ancient world that it was really harsh, like just so that we're really clear, it was really hard. There were no programs from the government for like welfare. And so if you were, if you were poor or broke, then you were in big trouble because the poor would die of disease or of starvation. That was just their lot. That was, that's what it was. And so what did God do with his people to show that God is different and merciful? Well, Drummond describes how God would tell people that they had the option of being sold as slaves. So a Hebrew, an Israelite, be sold as a slave to a fellow Israelite. Now you think, well, that sounds horrible, but it's not what you think. It's not like the, the American history of slavery. That's not what this was. This is very different. Because a slave would live with the masters in the household with the master, would become part of the family, would have a roof over his head, would have food on the table if he would get married and have kids, and the master would care for the whole family. And so instead of wondering, where am I going to sleep tonight? Instead of wondering, where am I going to get food for me or my kids? You had a place. You were with the master who was commanded in the word to be kind and to be gracious to those that were serving them. And after six years, on the seventh anniversary, so on the seventh year, the slave would have a conversation with the master. And if the slave said, hey, you know what? I've served you faithfully for six years. Um, I'm good now. I'm done. Then the master 
would release him from serving. He was not enslaved forever, just for six years. And then that slave would be given resources to go start his life and, and raise his family and not be destitute. And so the idea was here so that no one would starve and God's people caring for each other, providing for each other because they knew slavery in Egypt. And so now this was a way where masters could care for the poor. But see, sometimes, sometimes a slave would fall in love with the master's family. And on that seventh anniversary, he didn't want to go. He loved the master. And the idea of, of not serving him was painful. And, and, and for the master, the idea of not having his servant was just too hard to bear. And so on that morning, the slave would say, I want to stay. I don't want to go. And the master would hug him and say, great, I want you to stay too. And they would go hand in hand and walk out to the back to the shed. And the master would take out a hammer and he would take out an awl. Think a sharp instrument for piercing holes into like leather, for example. And the slave would gladly, willingly, out of his own desire, put his head against the door. And the master would grab the hammer and the awl, and he would drive the awl through the slave's ear to the door and pierce him and mark him, and then he would take out the awl. And they would both hug each other in tears and, and rejoice because now this servant was marked. Now this servant had a home, a permanent home. Now this servant was adopted into the family. And now the servant would never have to worry ever again about where he was going to eat or sleep. The servant had tasted grace and had been marked by grace. And everyone that would see the servant and see the hole in his ear would know that servant is serving out of love. No one is making him serve his master. He loves his master. And his master loves him. And they have a beautiful relationship. And he wants to stay. And he's not being coerced. He's not chained. As a response with love, he serves the master. This is what it's like for us. And so when you read verse 13 that we just read a second ago, let me read it to you again. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into the body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were made to drink of one spirit. Why are you a servant of God? Because of the grace of God. You are a servant of God because you have tasted 
mercy. You have tasted his presence. You have tasted, it says, his spirit. You have literally been made to drink of the spirit. And so we serve as a response of love and humility and gratitude. Jesus laid down his life for you and me so that we could then have life. And you are no longer a slave to sin. You are a servant of righteousness. You are no longer a slave in the kingdom of darkness. You are a servant in the kingdom of light and of righteousness. And so when we serve each other, we are serving the king who has been gracious to us. And so we serve others because Jesus has served us. We serve because of God's grace. We're marked by grace. We have been given a new identity. We are renewed and made new in Jesus. So when we serve others, we're actually serving the master. So we serve because Jesus first served us. The second truth, living your identity as a servant. So we know that now our foundation, so the basis for our identity is Jesus himself and his grace towards us. That's the foundation. So let's talk about living out our identity as a servant, and it's a lengthy text, but it is beautiful and worth reading out loud together, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, And all various kinds of tongues are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly seek, desire the higher gifts, and I shall show you still a more excellent way. There is a whole lot in this text 
Let me give you just the overall summary of this. We're seeing unity in diversity. Now, when we think of diversity, we, we tend to think of racial or, or ethnic diversity, but that's not what you see here. This is describing diversity within our gifting. So we need one another, just like our bodies have diverse body parts and organs and systems all working together to form one body, the spiritual body of Christ also is greatly diverse, and yet there is unity within it. And so each one of us has a role to play within the body. And this faith family, this expression of the body of Christ, cannot be healthy unless every one of us is doing our part for it to be healthy, unless all of us are participating and using our gifts the way God made us. So if you just show up on a Sunday without contributing, and you're not using your gifts that God has given to you, then what you're doing is you are actually robbing the body of you. You're robbing the body. God put you here for a purpose. And if you don't use that, and if you don't live that out, then this body can't be as healthy as she otherwise would be. So if one body part in your body is not functioning, how healthy would you be? It's the same thing in the body of Christ. And so the point here is you belong. You have a place. And if God is calling you to join this faith family, then you have the joy of experiencing his presence, his joy, as you serve with your brothers and sisters. But maybe you're wondering, yeah, but how do I do it? How do I serve like wanting to? Because that sounds like a lot of work to me. It sounds to me like it's a lot of work to get here at 7.30 on Sunday and do setup. It sounds like a lot of work to have to host a home group. Sounds like a lot of work to have to learn how to use a soundboard. Looks like it belongs at NASA. Maybe you think it's a lot of work to teach kids, or it's a lot of work to serve my neighbor. It's a lot of work to care for those people that are EGRs. You know what EGR is? Extra grace required. And if in your friend group, if in your home group, you're like, huh, where's the EGR? And if you can't find them, it's probably you. So, which is honestly all of us, we all need grace. Like, that's the whole point of this. How do you do this? How do you serve in a way that comes from the heart where it's a want to, like the slave that willingly, gladly has a hole pierced through his ear and wants to be marked, wants the identity of a servant and willingly, joyfully, gladly serves the master? Well, how do you do that? Let me give you two words. Two words. The first one, surrender. You surrender to God and his purposes and his plan for your life. We just read this in verse 18. It says, God arranged, God chose. Verse 24, God has composed the body. Verse 28, God has appointed. Are you seeing a theme in this text? God's in charge. 
He's the one that has called you and uniquely made you with all of your gifts, personality, experiences, everything about who you are. God has shaped you for a unique purpose to be lived out within the body to serve. And so it's a surrendering. I'm saying, God, whatever you want, I am done trying to define my life, my identity, my way. So it starts before your God surrendering. Second word, see. See, see what? See the grace of God. This whole text about serving is about God's grace. The very end, verses 28 through 30, where you see the word gift, gifts, gifts, said over and over and over. You know what that word is? Grace. Grace. So our serving is grace. Understand this. This is life changing. If you understand this, if the Spirit allows you to really get this, and I pray that you will see with the eyes of faith of what this text is revealing. Our serving is by the grace of God, and it's all from beginning to end expressions of grace. And so we serve by the grace of God. We can't do this on our own. It's all by God's grace and for his glory. I shared this a couple weeks ago that I, was, I had car trouble and, and I didn't call in for help and I walked home two miles in, in, in the June heat. And you know what happened to me? You know, you know what I experienced when the service ended, when I, when I confessed to my faith family that I didn't ask for help? People got mad at me. Like, I had about half a dozen people say, you did what? Like, angry eyes. Like, <laughs> some angry people saying, you better call me next time. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. And so the, the confession, if you weren't here, was that we all want to be self-sufficient. And everyone wants to think that we've got this together. We all want to pose and pretend that we have no problems. And, and we want to serve from a position of strength when it's quite the opposite. We serve from a position of weakness because that's when God gets all the glory. And you know what happened yesterday? I learned my lesson. I learned my lesson because, as I mentioned, we're in the process of moving, and I sent out some text messages to a few people from the church, and, oh, my goodness, I, it was overwhelming. So my house we're moving into was covered. Like, there was no square footage available in the house in any of the rooms because it was covered with people that had moved boxes and were assembling our IKEA furniture. Yes, I buy IKEA because that's what I can afford. Um, and so when we arrived, within two hours, what had been a house full of boxes now looked like a home. It was like, well, there's furniture. It was absolutely incredible. It was so humbling. And seeing my brothers and sisters laughing, enjoying each other on a Saturday, where they could have been doing whatever else would have been way more enjoyable, hanging out with me and assembling furniture, moving boxes, and yet they were, they were enjoying themselves. Because the core of this church has caught the vision. 
of who we are. We love each other. We sacrifice for each other. We go the extra mile. It doesn't even feel like the extra mile. It just feels like joy. I had people leaving yesterday saying, thank you for calling me. I'm like, you just came here and worked all morning. You're welcome. (laughs) It was amazing. Grace. It's all about God's grace. When we serve, it's an expression of God's grace. We are the conduits. His grace flows through us to others, and we are the ones who are blessed. You are missing out if you're not serving. I'm just telling you. Like, I'm not trying to give you a guilt trip. That's not what it is. I want you to catch this vision of the grace of God that empowers and fuels our serving one another. Because there are many wrong motives for serving. It ought to be an expression out of love and gratitude. That's how we should serve and fueled by God's grace, but it's very easy for church people, beginning with your pastor, to serve if we're not careful from the wrong motives. We can serve out of fear. We can. We, we can be motivated to serve God and maintain the external appearance of serving, and yet on the inside, the real reason that we're serving is that we are afraid. We're afraid that God won't love us. We're afraid that God won't accept us. We're afraid that the cross wasn't sufficient, and we're afraid that if we don't work hard, people won't like us. We're afraid that, that God will forget about us. And what happens with this fear is we, we have this equation that is just like default wired into a sinful humanity that says, if I do X for God, then he will give me Y. If I do this for God, if I serve him with X, then he will give me what I really want, which is Y. And so we don't actually want God. We don't want the presence of God. We don't want his joy and his grace. We want what we really want, whatever that is. And so we're afraid that we're not going to get it. So we work hard, thinking that somehow our hard work is going to convince God that we've now earned something that maybe God knows really isn't what's best for you. He knows what's best. Remember what we just read, he appointed, he chose, he is in charge. We surrender to him and we see his grace. We do not allow fear to motivate us. Recognition, that's another powerful one. The desire to have other people recognize and applause. It's just addicting. Here's the problem. If you are working and serving others for the applause of those same people, then you're not actually serving them. If you are working for recognition of other people, you are using people. You are not loving them. And we are called to love each other. And the world will know That Jesus is real when we love one another and not use each other for our own selfish agendas or ends. So 
Recognition is a very powerful and yet sinful motivator to serve God. I'll give you another one, pressure. We can feel pressured or, or guilted into things. And, and if I'm really honest, a church like ours, a young church where we want to spread God's renewal, we want people to be made new in Jesus and then grow in Jesus and be released into the world for Jesus. Like we want to see the mission flourish and yet what can happen if we're not careful is because of this, this internal pressure that's not from the Spirit, it's from our own sinful selves, we can actually see being missional as a checklist. And then we think, am I being missional enough? Am I knocking on enough doors? Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? God, did I do enough today? And you know what? It's just exhausting. It's exhausting. So that's not who we're going to be. We are called to be on mission. We are called to serve. We're from the position of the grace of God with our hearts resting in Jesus. And as the Spirit leads, we will be on mission. As the Spirit leads, we will reach more people but we're going to love them. People are not a means to an end. People are who Jesus came and died for. So we will love them. And if you're a guest, then we want to know you. We want to treasure you. And honestly, to keep it simple, we want to share life with you. That's what we want. We want nothing else from you, just to share life with you. We want the relationship because God loves you and you matter. And so you matter to this church. So we're motivated from love and gratitude. All about grace. Always has been, always will be. We serve because God has first served us through Jesus. We're saved to serve. We're set free to serve. Truth three, as we wrap up, the result. What is the result? We talked about the foundation. The, the foundation of our identity is in Christ himself, the servant. And how do you live this out? By seeing the grace of God, by surrendering to him. Truth three. Well, what's the result? What, what happens? We, we just read in verses 25 through 27 that we have the same care for one another and that we are the body and that we are a part of this together. And there's no division. So we serve together. And when we're together, we reflect the glory of God. And so when a church serves each other well, what happens is people who don't know Jesus they see what Jesus is like. They see what his kingdom is like. People who love each other, forgive each other, sacrifice for each other, where they belong to each other, where they encourage each other, they help each other move, they help each other when their car breaks down, bring meals, they come early to set up, they use their gifts to teach or play or sing or whatever it is. When we use our gifts together, the world doesn't understand why. And then 
And then the Spirit will open their eyes, and they will see, oh, oh, they have all been made to drink of the same Spirit. It's about God's grace. And they're drawn. They're drawn to Jesus. And to having some of that. Like, man, I want some of that. In the world where there's just division and emptiness and loneliness and the facade of social media, people want something real. May they experience it here. So what is the result? You'll get two things. If you, if you serve the way God has designed you, you will get fulfillment and you will get fruitfulness. You'll be fulfilled because there's God working through you, satisfying your soul. You'll experience fulfillment and fruitfulness. There are people that are very far from God that will be drawn to him as they see how we love one another. And it is such a joy to serve here.